Is uh, Dan with you or? He's right now uh, dealing with our new uh, vacuum, vacuum cleaner. cleaner. Oh. I have. Oh. Okay. Apparently there was another thing to put together. Isn't that nice? You can play yeah. with us now if you want. I told him yeah. that <laughs> I was only letting you play with us if uh, if you put together the vacuum cleaner. Now that your chores are done, you can join us. Yeah. And welcome to the new episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. This is episode 15, and I am one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm the other host, Andy. We are doing this late at night. Well, not late at night, really. It's it's 9.45, but it's really late for Elise. Oh, this is terribly late for poor Elise. Like, the cats have already gone to bed. I'm getting dirty looks for all the noise and the lights still happening. <laughs> they are not used to this at all. Uh, at all. My children just went to sleep. Well, Victoria's been asleep for a while, but Elizabeth just finally went to sleep, so... Our listeners may real notice that we sound different for this episode. We're trying something new uh, where we're recording in two different locations from our own homes. We're hoping this will solve the hollow sound that's been coming through in a lot of our episodes so far. So bear with us. We are new to podcasting and things are improving with everyone that we do. Hopefully if they're getting worse and we're kind of shit out of luck, I guess. <laughs> this is very very true <laughs> uh so we had a big day we've been having a big week for numbers lots of pickup that's really good so yeah when the show dropped on sunday we had about 20 people download it and listen right away nice and we had the same number today as we did on sunday and i think someone is binge watching like started at the beginning and our is working backwards from the looks of it. And I think they're from Norway of all places. Cool. I know, right? Yeah, Dan Dan's just caught up, I think, almost. I know. Nice. At least he got to the So, but I don't yeah. think he's from Asker, Norway. I don't think he is. Although, who no. knows? It's through PCL. God only knows where his phone thinks he is. <laughs> Let's not forget it. Thinks I live in Belleville, so True. You're not popping here oh and someone from oslo norway too Ooh, so we're international australia a couple from aussies two from lima peru that's very in norway we're big in norway in norway norway bork, 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 bork. no that's the swedish chef never mind yeah. i don't want to insult <laughs> him. close but not quite <laughs> So, yeah, um, we had a chat about who's going to go first this time, and uh, Andy is going to tell us about her story. So uh, we have no clue this time what each other is doing, and so everyone gets to learn and be surprised all at the same time. Yes. So uh, mine is all about a girl's best friend, which are apparently, according to Miss Marilyn Monroe, diamonds. Oh, yes. So the this came from, again, Life Science, which was that one that I found the sexually frustrated dolphins on. Uh, the giant pink legacy diamond fetches over forty four million dollars at auction. That was the title. Cool. So this is a bright pink diamond, which is very, very rare. 
um, a bright, a big bright pink diamond, which is even rarer. So this thing is a whopping 18.96 carats. Oh, geez. And it is so unusual, it's been called as good as it gets for colored diamonds. Hmm. So colored diamonds. How many carats? Eight, oh, how many? 18.96. Oh, that'll do some damage if you bitch slap someone while wearing it. Yeah. So this is a really big, it's gorgeous, though. I'm not really a big diamond, like big size diamond fan. I like my diamonds to be kind of small. Uh, as you might <laughs> you and I are completely opposite in that, but go ahead. Well, if you've seen my uh, like engagement ring and my family rings and stuff, they tend to be a bit smaller. I don't have a big area from my like bottom knuckle to my second knuckle. So a really right. big diamond looks really stupid on my hands, um, which it's like everybody's like, I don't need to know that. Well, it just really does. But this is a gorgeous ring. Like it is beautiful so pink diamonds are very rare colored diamonds are rare in general and especially apparently one that is this big and this vivid is extremely rare so this is like a unicorn of diamonds <laughs> uh so if you happen to have an more enormous cash uh, in your pocket you can uh you could have bought this but someone bought it for 44 million dollars uh, so Christie's yeah. just held this auction, which I guess they held every year, which is called Extraordinary Gems. Uh, so it had a bunch of really spectacular jewelry. I took a look through the catalog. Holy crap. <laughs> also some really god awful stuff too. But So diamonds do come in obviously clear, but they also come in a few other colors such as brown, orange, gray, or purple. They also come in blue. Other pink diamonds typically contain hues of other colors, but this one is pink through and through. It doesn't have any other color in it, which is very rare. And they have classified it by the Gemologist Institute of America as fancy vivid. And that is a qualification that is only awarded to one in 100,000 diamonds. Hmm. So it is very rare. Other colors of uh, diamonds happen because... Uh, the diamond absorbs chemical impurities while they're being formed. Uh, blue, I think, comes from buxin or bio, and um, yellow brown comes from nitrates. But pink uh, is caused is created by an intense physical disruption to their molecular structure during formation such as a seismic, so an earthquake while they're being uh, deep underground, while they're being uh, formed, can create this pink hue. So very different, very rare. That's just kind of bizarre. I thought like everything else is because a chemical got absorbed to it, and this one is because the earth shook. It's like maybe shaking a, an egg before you crack it into a pan or something. I'd like, I know, it's just... Can scramble it that way, but I would never have assumed something like a diamond would be, in essence, so delicate. I know because it's the hard, one of the hardest uh, materials on earth. Mm -hmm. You know who we need for this conversation with all these chemical discussions, right? Who? We need either Sarah or Dave. <laughs> Our two chemical, uh, I don't know if, if uh, either one of them have any uh, recollection to their chemistry degrees. <laughs> well, the pe uh, pink legacy diamond is the largest known cut and colored diamond. Raw diamonds are found much larger. With earlier this year, a 910-carat diamond was unearthed at a mine. Yikes. That is the fifth largest diamond ever found. Hmm. So the Pink Legacy, as I said, was part of Christie's Magnificent Jewels auction. And it 
it appeared alongside uh, 300 other uh, items. Some were very pretty. Some were really god-awful. There was a few, like, bejeweled cigarette cases, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> because, uh, well, a, and some of them were these really ugly bejeweled brooches, which looked like really ugly costume jewelry, but they were like $100,000 because they were red diamonds and rubies and sapphires and stuff. But they were in the shape of like jaguars and <laughs> it was just awful. Yeah, I guess at that point you just buy it and break it down for parts. Like, what's the point? Oh, I know. Some of it was pretty hideous, to be honest. Who wears brooches? I don't know. Old ladies. <laughs> very old. Does anybody still wear a brooch? <laughs> uh, if you check out any photo of the recent uh, royal family, all of the ladies wear brooches. That is true. No, they don't count, though. They're not. So I guess that's the class. <laughs> we should probably introduce um, our sit-in guest before we get much further into your story. Yes, this is uh, the much-talked-about husband of mine, Daniel. Somehow I've become a character on this. I don't know how, but <laughs> here I am. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> Long-time being subjective at this point <laughs> i've listened to as of tonight i've listened to all of them so Aww. I'm, I'm doing pretty good I try and there you go try and listen to it on my lengthy commute to and from work uh, and uh yes you've definitely uh managed to fill the void of useless information that i've never really needed to know but <laughs> now know and it's uh it's good you've 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 proven that the wash uh, that the, there's a saying that i heard once before the internet's like the washroom wall with cool graphics. And you've kind of proven that by finding all these interesting things that no one really yeah, needs to know. Absolutely. But it's cool. It's good. We are also just as classy as a bathroom wall. Not going to lie. We are. <laughs> yes. Uh, so this uh, article, because uh, Live Science is a wealth of information, this website, they love to have links in it. So they uh, linked to an um, article they posted in 2012 called Sinister Sparkle, 13 Mysterious and Cursed Gemstones. And I was like, yeah, I'm down for that. <laughs> so it starts with the infamous uh, Hope Diamond. Mm-hmm. And the Hope Diamond, everybody who's pretty much owned it, with the exception of the Smithsonian, has uh, befallen some really uh, hard times. So this is the Curse of Debt. So pretty much anybody who's owned it, from um, a French merchant to Louis XIV of France, who had the stone recut and set in gold... And then after Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette attempted to flee France, uh, it was stolen during the what is it the revolt? So during the revolution, and uh, then it was stolen and lost for a little bit. It was believed to be owned by King George the Fourth of England, but was sold after his debt to help settle his debts. And this is where we get into the mm-hmm. debts issue. It was then bought by Henry Philip Hope, from whom it's got its name, and it was passed down to the Hope family members until they ultimately sold it off to help pay their debts. It was again sold again, 
to an American mining heiress. And she ended up having a bunch of misfortunes. Her son died in a car accident. Her daughter died of a drug overdose. Her husband died in a sanitarium. And eventually it was sold in bankruptcy auction. And then the person who bought her entire jewelry collection, Henry Winston Incorporated, donated the Hope Diamond, which was which is worth a quarter of a billion dollars to the Smithsonian Institute. Wow. So the Hope Diamond, so that pink diamond, what I say was nine, almost 19 carats. The Hope Diamond is 45.354 carats. And the Hope Diamond is a grayish blue. So that is over twice the size of that pink diamond. Do people not realize that that thing is just a fucking rock? But it's a very pretty rock. <laughs> yeah, with all of this history attached to it. And it's I think it's that cachet of this is like a dangerous thing to own. And it's so famous. And all these famous people owned it. So, yeah, sure. Let's take a risk and shell out for it. And maybe we'll go bankrupt. And maybe we won't. But... We'll pay for it. Yeah, the Smithsonian has has that on their website as uh, owned it uh, since whatever date, curse free. Oh, <laughs> props to the uh, marketing department for knowing their lane and staying in it. Mm-hmm. So the next is the Koh Noor diamond, which is nice and cursed, but you might know it at least because it is now in the royal um, crown jewels, the royal collection of uh, jewels. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, of course, they've said that it was stolen, but it was uh, mined in India, and it means the Mountain of Light. It's a whopping, so right now, all cut, it's 105.6 carats. That's huge. It's it's blue, right? It's a bluish white? It, well, it's mostly white with some like yellow and a little bit of blue in it, I think. The picture that is up here is... It's predominantly clear. Yeah. It was just in the news in the last year or so because the the Indian government was arguing that the queen should give it back. And I think the queen decided no. <laughs> of course not. Throughout history, the gem traded hands amongst various Hindu, Mongolian, Parisian, Afghan, and Sikh rulers who, of course, fought bloody battles to own it. Sort of um, like the Elder Wand from Harry Potter, I guess. (laughs) According to folklore, a Hindu description of the diamond warns that he who owns this diamond will own the world, but will also know all its misfortunes. Only God or women can wear it with impunity. (laughs) So historical records indicate that the diamond was acquired by the British in 1949 and given to Queen Victoria in 1950. Sorry, 1850. Thank you. To heed its legends, the diamond has only has since only been worn by women, including the Queen of Denmark, Queen Mary of Tech, and the late Queen uh, Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Did the article say anything about how it got kind of loaned out to those other royals? No. That's weird. Yeah, because like, well, I guess both Queen Alexandra of Denmark and Queen Mary of Trek, weren't they both Victoria's daughters? I don't know for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised. So that's a good point. I think Queen Mary. Maybe mom just left them the piece. Yeah, and then the Queen the Queen Mother. And now it's kept in the Tower of London's London Jewel House. I don't think I saw it, though. I think it was one of the pieces that was out when we were there last year. I wouldn't be surprised if it's not on display for political reasons at this point. Yeah, I was just going to say. Better to just hide it. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I was just going to say this article says that the fight to possess the diamond is ongoing. India has been unsuccessfully lobbying to get the diamond back for years, while the British government maintains that it owns the gem fair and square. So this yeah. was this was published in nineteen or in uh, two thousand and twelve. So they're still fighting over it. Oh, the queen will be dead soon. Daniel, don't say that. That's still a hanging offense. Yeah, be. I, I think <laughs> we don't need them anyway. I wonder. Now I feel there's a rabbit hole starting about what old laws regarding the royal family are on the books. Like, we know you can't scare the queen, but like, what else is there? I know. I think that's one for Mm -hmm. you. So the next one is (laughs) the Black Prince's Ruby, the blood red great imposter. So the Black Prince's Ruby isn't actually Ruby at all, but a large spinel, a hard glassy mineral that crystallizes into various shapes, shades, including fiery red. Ah, so that is why it's known as the Great Imposter. So it's worth fuck all that. The ruby is believed to have been mined from Bagistan, which was in present day Tar. I don't know. I ain't gonna Targistan? T A G I K I S T A N. Oh, good. Turkestan. Yeah. It was the first recorded during the 14th century when it was plundered from the Moorish kingdom. By Don Pedro the Cruel. Oh, good lord. Who was, at the time, the ruler of Seville in Spain. This ruby, quote-unquote, was then owned by Edward of Woodstock, who was called the Black Prince. Because of his successes on the battlefield during the Hundred Years' War, in 1415, King Henry V obtained the Black Prince's ruby and had it set in his battle helmet Amongst side real rubies. Oh, yes. And then the king wore that helmet when he defeated the French forces at the Battle of Angacourt. Ang- Ang- Good Lord. Angacourt. Thank you. The gem was passed down to British royalty, including Henry VIII, his daughter Elizabeth I, until King Charles I was beheaded for treason and the stone was sold. Charles II bought the stone back from an unknown party but nearly lost it when the infamous Irish Colonel Thomas Blood attempted to steal the crown jewels in England from the tower in 1671. Currently, the Black Prince's ruby is set dead center in the front of the Imperial State Crown of England. Huh. So they have this giant hmm. not ruby ruby. The next one is a purple sapphire. That's another imposter because it really isn't a sapphire, but an amethyst, which is a type of violet-hued quartz. It was stolen by a British soldier from a temple of Irene, the Hindu god of war and weather, during the Indian Mutiny of 1857. There was a bunch of bad luck. Colonel W. Ferris, whose family then supposedly suffered many financial and health woes. The stone was given to Edward Huron Allen, a scientist and writer in 1890, who claimed to have started having bad luck immediately after receiving it. He gave the amethyst away to friends who were also struck with misfortune and quickly returned the gift back to him. (laughs) And now how much bad luck to get like, I mean, it's a beautiful, huge gem. But like, how bad does your luck have to be to be like, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. Apparently, 
Here you go. It's cursed because it is it is stained with the blood and dishonor of everyone who has ever owned it. Weary of its alleged powers, he kept it locked away in seven boxes and surrounded by good luck charms. Okay, that's just overkill. <laughs> After his death, his daughter donated the amethyst to the London's Natural History Museum in 1943. Along with hmm. the stone, she gave them a letter that her father wrote, cautioning future owners against directly handling it. And now the mysterious... It's not like it's poisonous. Like, it's just a piece of stone. And actually, they have now permanently on display as part of the Natural National History Museum's vault collection of precious gemstones. Which is funny, because I, I remember, like, a couple of like TV shows and stuff having like a locked seven box cursed gem as part of uh, the plot lines. Mm-hmm. I can't think of what the names of the shows now, but I remember the, that sort of part of the story. So I guess that's where it comes from. And I'll end with one more, the eye of Brahma diamond, which is a 67.5 carat cushion cut. Oh, the black Orloff. Thank you, Dan. Seven point five carat cushion cut diamond was again unearthed in India in the early eighteen hundreds. So apparently, all diamonds from India are just cursed, or stones in general. Apparently, it's called black, but it's actually a deep gunmetal gray. Close enough. Yeah, it's quite pretty, actually. According to lore surrounding it. The diamond was stolen from a a sacred shrine in southern India. The then 195-carat stone was allegedly removed from the eye of a statue, then obviously cut down. The legend has it that the diamond was later acquired by the Russian princess. We're going to know. She's also known as Nadia, which is great because I will never be able to pronounce her actual first name whom the stone was named after. And according to the nature of diamonds, it's rumored that Princess Nadia, with along, along with two of the Black Olaf's owners, upon attaining the diamond, committed suicide by jumping off of bridges. But these stories have not been substantiated. In 1947, Charles F. Winston bought the diamond and cut it to its current size. Good lord, so that thing was huge! And also... Placing it in a setting surrounded by 108 other diamonds, hanging on a necklace of 124 other diamonds. Some people just have more money than common sense. Like, come on. So this thing started out as 195 carats, was cut down to 67.5 carats, and then set with about 200 and 30-something other diamonds around it. Who would wear it? Like, where do you even wear that to? Like, you're just going to throw on, like, a little black dress and slap that sucker on it and call it a night? Like, come on. You can't reasonably wear that. Now, it has been said purchased and resold by a succession of private owners and has been on display at several museums, including the, uh, the American Museum of Natural History in New York and London's National History Museum. But it really, I don't know how cursed it is, since it's really just the first people who apparently committed suicide. But everybody else. How many deaths do you have to have attached to it to be cursed? 
Is there like a threshold that we have to meet here or what? I would think that at least more than one owner has to die or befall. Like, I mean, look at the Hope Diamond. There's a lot of people who like went into debt or died mysteriously involved with that one. Yep. So yeah, that's all. I'll leave it at that one. There's a few more in here. A couple of wolves. They all ended up owned by British royalty at some point. (laughs) That's where all the money was at a a certain point in history. So (laughs) not surprising. Yeah. You should talk about other uses for diamonds. Yes. I, I use them all the time. Yes, you guys use the not so beautiful diamonds to cut things and I have lots of them though. That is true. Well, I think you should tell us about it. You're here, you're at the table. Tell us about it. Okay. I have diamonds in my boots. I wear them every day. It's my bling. <laughs> no, I'm serious, actually. Is it just decorative? No, they're sa- or they're, does it does it serve? They're safety this? boots, winter safety boots for construction. So, like, actually embedded in the sole of the boot are like little tiny pieces of diamond, which ends up giving you traction on ice or hard packed snow. It's actually quite handy. Uh, yeah. yeah, where can I get a pair? You look at the sole, <laughs> I need you that look at to the protect sole my knees. Big honking boots. Uh, <laughs> you see little specks of like well diamond in there, I guess. These boots also weigh like what like a couple of pounds each. Yeah. They're so heavy. They're warm though. And then saw blades. We use saw blades that have diamonds in them. Diamond cut blades. Cut through concrete. It's good. Hmm. You have purchased me a number of very pretty diamonds. Yes. And at one point I actually knew how to like identify a diamond. I remember like when I was looking around for your engagement ring. I don't know. There's a bunch of letters and crap that comes after it when you're like looking at a diamond and it supposed to mean like different stuff and i'm sure if you go on the internet you'll find that yeah it's Don't color add. clarity and something else it's three c's isn't it i don't know i can't remember anymore there's, there's just a there's bunch it? of just a bunch of yeah there's like a bunch of letters that like had to do with the purity of it the 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 color of it the cut of it they're i don't know it all meant something my my engagement ring was people who care lovely. and people who are like you know, walking around with these multi-billion-dollar diamonds, I'm sure know all about what that that means. But I don't. I know about the diamonds in my boots. <laughs> it's a good thing he's pretty. No. <laughs> I love you, baby. No, he does very good diamond picking out. All my diamonds are very lovely, and I have a number of them. I'm a very lucky lady. But I also have dan's uh birthstone is diamond as is uh victoria's so so you've got a built-in excuse for why you get to wear diamonds all the time exactly nice (laughs) i'm surprised you haven't talked about like you know the ron white there the comedian you know like on the blue collar tour yeah ron white he does the the bit about the diamonds oh yes the de beers commercials and the truth and advertising it's like uh you you got the website or twitter insta yeah we'll have to whatever yeah do just Post post the YouTube link on it or whatever. I'm sure you he talks about it. like you know how to uh, like De Beers or other diamond companies use just like diamonds take her breath away. That's diamonds like, render her speechless. Plus. And then he's he like, goes, it's getting closer to the truth. Diamonds that'll shut her up. <laughs> yeah, for a while. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I was waiting for when that was gonna process <laughs> you'll be sleeping downstairs by yourself or i'll just put the like very wily toddler in with you so over to your story madame what are you doing tonight oh by the way at least My- your bit on the like florida man or florida woman thing that was good 
Oh yeah. yeah. That that was actually laughing my ass off listening to that. <laughs> it, it's true as God, hell. I'm looking the on the news lines, like on the you know, scrolling through the news headlines today and and I find one I think and you for I, I I posted it. About the floor. Posted the it, yeah. Florida woman that farted in the line and like ended up in like a knife fight. <laughs> in her defense, the guy who said something about it that was just rude. Like she, he kind of in the lineup. Like who was the rude one there? Sometimes you hold it in. <laughs> there might have been a little bit of an overreaction on her part, but he couldn't have got it. She got him like a fish <laughs> or something. <laughs> Oh, that that was one of those articles where the the title the title did not disappoint. No, not at all. They rarely do. Lord love Florida because no one else will. <laughs> so my story tonight was actually supposed to be my Halloween episode story, uh, but it turned out it was more sad than like scary or creepy. So I decided to just kind of put a pin in it and come back to it uh, a little bit later. I wanted to do a topic that was creepy, but that I hadn't heard about on any of the other podcasts that I listened to. So that made me think about what the scariest moment I can remember. Uh, and that was my springboard for this story. So there was one incident when you, when I was in university, I was in an English class and we were assigned to read the book, The Time Traveler. no. The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. And I was doing the typical undergrad thing where you wait to the very last minute to read the book. So it's cut to like 3 a.m. the night before the class where we were supposed to have it read. And I'm on the couch reading. And I get to the point where something is coming out of the darkness to grab the main characters and they're kind of disappearing. And I was really tired and really punchy. And all of a sudden, I hear this creepy rustling coming from somewhere in my apartment. And I had no clue what it was. And I was utterly terrified because, again, 3 a.m., stressful situation. And I was so freaked out and I was so terrified. But living alone, I decided I had to figure out what it was. So I very cautiously crept into my bedroom where the sound was coming from. And what do I find but the cat burrowing itself into the closet, like the pile of stuff I had in the closet looking for a comfy, cozy sleeping spot. It damn near killed me. Like, 20-year-old having a full-on freak-out heart attack, and there's this cat just, like, chilling and not understanding what it did. And it was so upsetting to me. I was like, what? Did you did you forget so, I existed? Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Like, it's really late. We should probably go to bed. And because you're not in bed, I'm in the closet and no one's happy now. So thank you for that. <laughs> Cats are such assholes. Worst, worst incident of the world. If you are not familiar with uh, the time machine and HG Wells, what was coming up out of the ground and grabbing things were these creatures called the Morlocks. And this is what I'm the theme of my story this week is people and cultures and civilizations that live underground and what they really are and why they're there. So the Morlocks uh, are one half of the time machine story and they live underground and they're described as really scary, creepy looking. And the other part of that equation is the Eloy. And those are the people that live above ground and they're a serene kind of higher level being that the time traveler in the time machine encounters. 
So if you're not familiar with the time machine, just a, a quick Sparks note summary of the book. There's the main character is a scientist and uh, thinks steampunk, which is kind of got its inspiration from this story. He creates a time machine and travels forward to the year 802,701 AD. And as he leaves his time machine, he encounters this race of people called the Eloi. They're frail and peaceful, and they share their fruit with him, and he seems to really enjoy their company, and it's a good kind of uh, happy civilization on the surface. While he's there, he catches a brief glimpse of strange white ape-like creatures that are called Morlocks, and they live below the ground and are responsible for keeping this ancient machinery running. They don't know what the machinery is really for. They don't know who built it or why. They just understand that they have to maintain it and keep it running. So from Wikipedia on the Morlocks themselves, while the Eloi live on the surface, the Morlocks are relegated to the underground. And after thousands of generations down there, they have dull gray white skin, chinless faces, large grayish eyes, and pale hair on their head and back. And I'm not naming names, but I'm pretty sure I dated one once in university. (laughs) So because they live underground, they are sensitive to sunlight uh, and they come out mainly at night, which is what is so terrifying about their presence in the story. It's just something grabs an Eloy and disappears underground and it's really well written and terrifying. As the story progresses in the time machine, the time traveler soon learns that the Morlocks and the Eloy have this weird symbiotic relationship where the Morlocks are responsible to feed and clothe the Eloi, and in return, they get to eat the occasional Eloi. So it's this really weird, reliant relationship. And the book was written in 1895, so there's a lot of symbolism in that. There's a lot of racism and classism that H.G. Wells was kind of packing into it. Basically, though, what he's doing is describing his own society taken to the extreme where the lower classes are uh, responsible for uh, caring for the upper classes and keeping them in their comfy, cozy lifestyle. So it's a great book. If you haven't read it, I highly suggest you do. Uh, It's a really shitty movie, so don't bother wasting your time with that. Just read the book. I was just going to ask you if there was a movie, because I don't like to read books. It is a movie. It's a couple of movies, actually. It's a popular theme that kind of keeps getting re-looked at. Uh, but uh, the movie's really bad. I think it starred one of the guys from Starship Troopers, so that tells you all you need to know. That was a good movie. <laughs> I remember watching it like a gajillion times because we were living in Arnprior at the time, and there was like one week where that's all we could get at the movie store. Oh, just on repeat. The, the days before Netflix were hard. <laughs> Try to keep those blockbusters alive, people. Oh boy, they're all gone the now, which is bad. Arm prior. <laughs> Sorry, video flicks. There was a <laughs> either, either video no, it flicks or arm prior video. Video flicks. Uh, That's what it was. Mall. The one in the mall. Yeah. <laughs> so the Morlocks were the jumping off point for me for this rabbit hole. Because as terrifyingly as terrifying as they are, and I'll post some drawings to give you the visual, they aren't a complete invention by H.G. Wells. Throughout history, people who were extremely poor or didn't fit into traditional societies fled the surface and actually sought out refuge in the dark and underground and built lives there. So the rest of my rabbit hole is going to look at two famous cases of that. One is historical and one is contemporary. 
The first, the historical one, is actually the Edinburgh Vaults. So uh, in Scotland, there's an early episode of Ghost Adventures on them. So if you want the visuals to go with this story, once the show is done and you're finished listening to it, uh, head over to YouTube and check it out because it actually is a pretty good episode. And Zach Baggins isn't as douchey then as he is now. So it's bearable to watch. <laughs> Andy's done. Uh, from the Scotsman.com. Uh, they kind of give a description of the situation there. So across the Cowgate Valley at the southern end of Edinburgh's High Street is the South Bridge. Construction of that bridge started in 1785, which is 100 years before Wells's story. And the bridge itself is comprised of 19 arches, of which only one is visible above ground. And the other 18 are built, in essence, underground and became a system of vaults. They used to contain businesses like taverns, a distillery, and some tradespeople, but were eventually closed because there was poor lighting and sanitation. Uh, and when I say poor, I mean none. It just wasn't considered in the building process, so it was just dark underground caverns, really. After the official, like the, the not official, but like legitimate, that's a good word, after the legitimate businesses moved out, the vaults became housing for the city's poor, but then at some point in the 19th century, they were backfilled in order to eliminate the undesirable presence in the area. And for quite a while, until the 80s, they were just lost to the general population of Edinburgh. Like there was n nobody knew how to get into them or if they were still open or if they had been completely backfilled. And it was a famous rugby player in the 80s or 90s who spearheaded the, the initiative to find them and dig them out again. Now, though, that the vaults have, have been refound and they're open, they have a reputation for being haunted or cursed. And if you're in Edinburgh, there are like a gajillion ghost tours that will take you through them uh, to have a look. So let's talk about some of the ghosts that are found in the vaults. From an article on inews.co.uk, uh, there's a profile done. And the first, and this isn't my word, and so I give credit. Creepin' stance as associated with the bridge's opening. The wife of a well-respected local judge was supposed to be the first person to walk across the bridge. But when she died a few days before that ceremony was supposed to happen, they decided they didn't have to change their plans. And so she was the first person across the bridge, but she crossed it in her coffin. What the fuck? So a lot of, yeah, a lot of people say that brought really bad mojo to the whole situation and was the start of all of the problems with the vaults. No shit. Once the legitimate businesses moved out of the vaults, which happened within 10 years of the bridge's opening, it became a black market and red light district. A lot of brothels, pubs and gaming dens moved in and with them came a plethora of really sketchy characters criminals and the poorest people in the city ended up living there just as um, a place of last resort so picture families like we're talking big scottish families would all be crammed into stonewalled rooms that were probably as tall as dan is standing up and there was no lighting in any of the rooms. There was no ventilation. There was no water of any kind. It was a terrible living condition. And families were living down there. Um, there's even rumors that Burke and Hare, who deserve a rabbit hole of their own, 
uh, but they're basically serial killers who were looking for bodies to sell to the famous Edinburgh Medical School. At that time, when modern medicine was being developed, they needed corpses to do autopsies on. And the lore, the legend is that Burke and Hare haunted the, well, haunted is a bad word. They hung out in these vaults to look for victims that they could then kill and take to the medical school. Well, that's fucked up. Uh, absolutely. That's a rabbit hole in its, of itself. That's that, that's on my list to do at some point. Uh, once the vaults were filled in, like I said, um, they kind of disappeared from the city's common knowledge. And they were only rediscovered in the 1980s. Since then, they've become a really famous haunt, pun intended, for fans of the paranormal who want to go on uh, these ex- uh, these kind of explorations and ghost trips. If you visit, you may feel cold gusts of air. You'll hear voices and see unusual shadows. People also have reported being scratched or feeling a presence around them. Given the poverty and misery and the danger that exists in these vaults, it's no surprise that there's some sort of emotional stigma attached to the location. So there was a story in the Daily Mail in 2015 that described a terrifying encounter that two tourists had while they were in the vaults. Emma and Lauren Sergener, who are sisters, were visiting and snapping photos, and one of them seems to have captured a lurker in the background. So Emma that night was taking a lot of pictures and a bunch of them came up either empty or just completely blacked out for some reason. One picture, however, seems to show a tall man in a full skirted coat and tall boots standing behind her sister, Lauren, who was looking into one of the rooms in off a hallway that they're in. Lauren reports that when the photo was taken, she did feel someone kind of standing behind her, but it was dark and tight area so she wasn't entirely sure what had happened however once the picture got out there was a lot of stories that came a lot of people came forward talking about this presence that they also felt and who now has the nickname the watcher every other kind of person who described him before and even after this uh, story came out they all describe him the same way as having been tall with no eyes a full beard and wearing a long coat and big thigh high boots. So it really seems like they caught this presence standing behind Lauren and the photo that was taken just seconds after the first uh, Emma was like shooting a bunch, just random photos. There's nothing in it. Like it's the same photo in essence. It should be the same photo, the same angle and everything. And there's nothing in the second one. So, I mean, I think there might've been something there. I don't know. (laughs) So the vaults were terrible in their heyday. No one moved into them by choice. It was really a refuge of last resort where the poorest ended up living. The society at the time had really no social safety net or what was there wasn't great. And for some people, it was at least a spot to be sheltered and out of the colds and out of the wet. And it was a place to be called home. No, it's probably better than a workhouse. So waking up. Yeah, and that's just it. And in workhouses that were run by the church or kind of auxiliary groups, the families would be split up. So in in one sense, I guess, being together is better than that, but not a great area. But let's not get on too high of a horse about the whole situation and delude ourselves that this can't and doesn't happen in our day and age, because it does. And the most famous example is in New York City. So New York, like the Edinburgh of the 19th century, is an area in which the extremely rich and the devastatingly poor live together. 
And like the vaults of the Scottish capital, the underground spaces of New York are teeming with humanity. It was such a, a commonly understood phenomenon that there was a pejorative nickname given to them. There was a couple from the 90s, and they became known as New York's mole people, or I think chuds it was the other one, uh, cannibalistic underground human dwellers. Uh, neither of them are very flattering names. From an article on narratively.com by Anthony Tail, The Truth About New York's Legendary Mole People. I found a bunch of information about what was really happening underground. The history of underground communities started as soon as the underground spaces are starting to be opened up with the subway construction in 1904. There were a lot of urban legends about the people living in New York's massive underground tunnel system. There are subway lines, sewers, general construction areas. They're all built on top of one another. They go down several layers. They go sideways. It's, it's a massive complex underground that I don't think a lot of people give much thought to. Part of the rumors, part of the lore around them is that they can't be out in the daylight because they're so used to the dark uh, that they'd be blind if they were on the surface. They want all of the top dwellers dead and that one day they'll riot and overthrow the topsiders with some of the, the legends and the lore that were circulating at the time. And it sounds a little bit like the H.G. Wells Morlocks, quite frankly. Uh, in fact, most of the people who live underground do so for the same reason as they did in Edinburgh. They're homeless and it's just a good place to find shelter. They have to deal with the occasional rousting efforts by the New York Police Department or Amtrak, but otherwise it's pretty much a life off the grid. One person interviewed for this article mentioned that being underground keeps him safe because he's not bothered by kids. He can live on his own terms because he's a former convict with some substance issues and mental health problems. So living underground might not sound great, but it's, it's at least a comfortable existence for him. The underground communities of New York got a lot of attention in the early 90s when some of New York's literati started writing about them. And it really became a popular topic in 1993 after Jennifer Toth published an essay called The Mole People, which described this grand social structure and the living conditions underground, where people allegedly lived in compounds, where they had... Um, women giving birth and they were governed by internal elected officials and they had hot water and electricity so think of any kind of example of new york that you saw from the 80s or 90s that kind of gritty look and jennifer toth comes out and saying well if you go underground they have a complete society that's separate from us and it garnered a lot of attention but really, the people at that time who had encountered these communities started calling bullshit almost immediately and pointing out that some of what Jennifer Toth was claiming was just factually impossible and was being conflated by the media because the media loves a, a, a weird story. And this was a really weird story that was out. If you want a more truthful account of the community living underground, try Tuan Votin's 1996 diary, The Tunnel People or Mark Singer's documentary, The Dark Days. It's not the bustling communities, and it wasn't the bustling communities that Toth claimed to exist, which they probably didn't. They're definitely gone now, even if they did exist. But there are still modest communities that are down there, but they're very discreet. And that's according to a former MTA maintenance inspector who was down in those tunnels quite a bit. 
if there's one celebrity from that world, it would be Bernard Isaac. He's a former journalist who lived in the Riverside Park tunnels, and he's also known as the Lord of the Tunnel and was the de facto spokesperson for the community during the media frenzy around it in the 90s. When uh, Ty was writing this article, Isaac told him that by the time he was living down there, there were small tribes of vagrants who built thriving shanty towns. And while he appreciates the idea of living underground as scary, it became a haven for the destitute to unwind without fear of getting arrested or attacked like people in the streets. The rules down there, as described by Isaac, were effective and very simple. Uh, You respect privacy, there's no yelling, there's no stealing, and no stupid behavior, or you would get kicked out. And most people followed them. So there's shades of what Toth was talking about in terms of um, a society and operation down there, but it wasn't as formal and it wasn't as grandiose and as large as she was presenting. It didn't seem like they had uh, elected officials. It was just, you know, you keep to yourself because that's everybody down here just wants to be left alone and keep to themselves and... As long as you do that and don't steal from anybody else but the meager things that they have, then you're good to go. Exactly. Yeah. Once uh, people get accustomed to living underground, and this is Ty's kind of summary of the situation and his observation. So once people are accustomed to living underground, they have a hard time adjusting to life back up top. And there are a lot of stories of people that make it out of this underground world but they become really disillusioned really fast on the top side and end up back there in the end anyway. And I think that's kind of to your point, Andy, it's just like, it's really simple rules down below. It's a really obvious lifestyle, like A and B leads to C. It's, it's just really straightforward. We're up top. There's just so much bullshit happening that I can see some people giving up and just going back to that. New York social safety net is absolutely crap compared to the lives that people can build in the underground. For example, in 2014, the city paid one homeless shelter $4,000 a month for 100 square feet of room to be occupied by one homeless person. So that was the average that they were paying and they were paying out for multiple 100 square foot rooms. These areas where these people could go these 100 square foot rooms are often in the bad parts of town they're filthy they're not well maintained there's uh, a lot of crime happening so why would you choose to live in a 100 square foot hovel up top in this complex network when in fact you're coming out of an area that's much more simpler and a lifestyle that's much more straightforward. So that's why a lot of people ended up going back. And also the thought of what could you do with $4,000 a month per person that would be more effective use than 100 square foot in a, in a, a, a hovel, like a really bad rundown ghetto. Like, it's a really poor use of the money that New York City does have, but it's it's what their current process is. That's insane. Yeah, for sure. This wasn't your traditional scary story, which is why it didn't make it to the Halloween episode. But as an adult, this is what terrifies me now. So slipping somehow and not being able to recover and then ending up in like the former inhabitants of Edinburgh's vaults or in the New York subway system. Terrified. There was an episode of Hoarders on A&E once, like a gajillion years ago when I still had cable and I was still living in that apartment where the professional cleaner who was on that episode found a bucket that had been used as a toilet because the actual toilet in the home was no longer functional. And so at one, he's taking this bucket out of the house and at one point 
he looks at the camera and just like just goes i guess we're all just a few decisions away from shitting in a bucket (laughs) and he said that and i was just like holy shit this is true this is the horror story for all adults who are like responsible adults like you are always just one or two decisions away from living this kind of life. And so that's, that's the scary story for me. So the true story here, the true horror story here is that the lives we live now are in fact really fleeting and delicate and we have to take care of them. And we have to support those who are living in these poor conditions that aren't necessarily the safest or the healthiest. So that was my modern adult horror story, and I hope several of you out there were as terrified as I am of that. Well, if you ever find yourself having to live underground, you can come and live in our basement. Um, excuse me, you're building that house with a Joey-style room above your garage. I expect better than the basement. <laughs> that is true. We get you and Sarah gets James. So, Yes. <laughs> Our our responsible friends have divvied up us single people and uh, who is going to take care of whom uh, in the inevitable Chandler slash Joey end of youth run of things. So I'm looking forward to my garage room. Wait a minute. It's my garage. <laughs> yeah, Dan, uh, we might have to have a conversation about that, but I did see some of the early drawings for the house and I did remind Andy that there needs to be a room above that garage. So I hope it made it on there for the next version. No, 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 no. I built the garage for me. The garage is mine. The rest of the house is basically Andrea's. I get to sleep there, maybe. Then I call dibs on the attic. <laughs> yes. We, we will have a room. But like a nice attic. Yeah, that is, it is true. It's like you could make a poor decision or two and, you know, end up shitting. You find yourself shitting in a bucket. We should put that on a shirt. <laughs> yeah, that's a shirt right there. <laughs> we might have to pay royalties to A&E, but it'll be worth it. Yeah, A&E doesn't remember what they did two years ago. It's true. <laughs> they don't remember that they're supposed it's to not the art and entertainment. Mm, this is true. We got the entertainment part down. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about art. Like, I don't know. I miss... I would I, say it's very arty these days. It's... No, it's Re- much more storage quote wars. Quote reality TV. Oh, see, I gave up my cable so long ago. I I feel like I'm out of date, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised if their entire lineup is just storage criminal minds, storage wars, Storm- and 48 and Dog the Bounty Hunter. Ah, yes. Oh, I miss old A and E though. I miss like America's Castles and City Confidential, and when it used to, you know. Be art. Yeah, and like undiscovered. Like, what was the one that Leonard Nimoy um, narrated? Oh, yeah. I don't remember. The Unknown or something like yeah. that. That's what I liked. Yeah, that's like also when TLC used to be the learning channel. <laughs> TLC gave that up a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> now it's the Trainwreck channel. Or the Touch Little Children channel, but it's been a while since there's been a scandal. That's true. They haven't had Duggars on in a while. Hmm. (laughs) Well, those are our rabbit holes for this evening. Over to you. So just uh, the normal reminders. If you want to get in touch with us, you can check out our website, www.rabbitholespodcast.com. We have all the show notes up there for you. 
And when we say show notes, we mean links to the articles where we got our information. If you want to get in touch with us and tell us about a rabbit hole that you like or that you hope that we would dive down and share with our audience, you can send us an email at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. We are on the social at Twitter. Our handle is at rabbitholespod. We have a Facebook page, Rabbit Holes Podcast. And Andy is curating our Instagram, and the handle there is at rabbitholespodcast. If you like what we're doing and you want to support us, please take a minute and check out our Patreon page. We would love to have you as a patron. There's a lot of fun stuff right now already up on the not-so-secret secret part of our website for patrons of the Velveteen tier and above. And there's more stuff coming all the time. If you want to rep us out in the big bad world, we have some merch available for you at our Redbubble store. So you just head over to Redbubble and search for the show name, or we have a merch tab on our website with all the details there. And if you have a minute, uh, please head over to iTunes, Stitcher, and or wherever you are downloading this podcast and leave us a good rating or a review. It helps with our visibility and get our name out there and grow our audience. And also there was a article came out in the last week that said people get most of their podcasts from recommendations for friends. So if you like what we're doing, tell a friend about us and browbeat them into listening to an episode or two. Tell 10 friends. Yeah. If you have 10 friends, I don't think I do. But if you do, if you're popular and cooler than I am, for sure, tell them all. I have been telling everybody. So remember, everybody, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye.